0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Justin Savage, the co head of the environmental and automotive and mobility groups at Sidley Austin. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, David. Longtime listener,
1: first time guest.
0: So, we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background and your time in the environmental division of the DOJ, and then the challenges of managing environmental risks for companies and how companies and their boards and executive teams should think about ESG. And then a little bit about your work with the Automotive and Mobility Group at Sidley, which dovetails very nicely with one of your main non-work interests. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to practice law and uh, practice environmental law.
1: Thanks, David. And practicing law, much less environmental law at a place like Sidley, is something I just never imagined I would do. I was born in Evanston, but my mom very quickly moved us down to New Orleans, where I grew up, and my parents had a nontraditional path. They had me in high school, and uh, then my mom got a nursing degree, and for college, I really didn't even know if I was going to go, but I got a letter and ended up getting a scholarship to McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana, so a little bit of going back to Louisiana from Chicago, where my mom had moved us. And there I met my wife. We were on the policy debate team. We did that for a number of years. Our daughter, Caitlin, was born in college. And then I went to your alma mater, UVA Law, and graduated in 97. Uh, worked in DC at a tremendous environmental boutique and then went to the Justice Department, the Environment Division, as you indicated. Uh, and I did that in 2004. And it's a classic DOJ story. I had a friend who had tried some big cases there in the utility sector. And he said, come over. It's, It's fun. And I thought I'd be there two years. Well, 10 years later, (laughs) I came back to the private sector. Probably the most noteworthy matter I worked on there was United States versus American Electric Power or AEP. We had tried a Clean Air Act case against AEP and the, the judge had withheld decision. We got ready for a second trial and then we reached a settlement. At the time the settlement was reached in 2007, it was the largest single environmental settlement in history. It was about a $4.6 billion settlement. It involved 16 coal-fired power plants in five states. It had 13 citizen groups, and the estimated reduction in emissions is 813,000 tons. For your listeners uh, who may not know the context of that, that's a lot. A major amount of emissions under certain programs can be 40 tons. So that gives you some sense of scale. And then from there, in 2013, I came back to the private sector I ended up at Sidley, where I really enjoyed proxy. Tell us a little bit about
0: the lessons you took from your time at the DOJ and how you apply those in private practice.
1: That's a great question. And working on a case like the AEP case and several other deals and then litigating, you quickly understand that the federal government or the states have a different set of criteria when they're trying to reach a resolution. Or a deal. There can be considerations such as consistency between players in a certain industry sector to have a level playing field. There can be messages that they want to send for general deterrence to a particular industry sector. And other considerations that if you're doing a commercial deal or MA, and I work on those, particularly where there's a compliance, enforcement, or climate change angle, they're just not really part of the vocabulary. So what I think I learned. The most there that I apply in my everyday practice is how do you translate from the commercial deal-making context, whether it's private equity, public company, to the government's deal-making criteria or matrix and trying to find the bridge between them. And sometimes when you're in the room, and these days, I guess the virtual room, with whether it's EPA, the Justice Department, states, or even international regulators – and a company and management and trying to explain it to the board it's almost like people are speaking two different languages so i think the skill i learned the best there is how do you between those two venn diagrams find a sweet spot to reach a resolution
0: and are there specific deals you know where you've been particularly proud of your work in doing that that you can talk about
1: yes so i think at sidley and the other firms i've worked at we've done a number of deals where i think the skills that I learned at the Justice Department, working not only with that agency, but with EPA and other agencies have come into play. And I'll I'll give a few examples. One, we have done a number of deals in the auto sector where we've been able to help companies not only resolve historic liabilities, but in some cases, we think set up decision making criteria with EPA uh, that allows them to compete better in the market and in a compliant way. In fact, I think one of those deals, you could even say it provided a safe harbor, provided a company took certain steps. And then another example of deals would be we've worked on a number of energy sector deals where EPA or other agencies had raised concerns about the ability of an asset to operate in compliance and we being able to come in and resolve those deals, we think, on favorable terms, but also in a timeline that worked for the companies. You know, one thing... In the deal making and the private side and the public side, one of the largest gaps is just time. You know, the government has its own interests. And so a deal on the government side, if it's a complex consent decree or on the criminal side a plea, it can take years to resolve. So how do you how do you conjoin that or lock that up with the commercial side and be able to deliver in a way that's favorable, but also within a reasonable time frame? Because telling the client, well, this will be a seven-year process. That doesn't really work for most management and most boards.
0: Obviously, ESG has become far more important in recent years. How do you go about communicating with boards and management teams that may not be deeply versed in environmental issues about the environmental piece of ESG? And how has your practice changed as a result of the increased focus on ESG?
1: I'll start with the second question. Our practice has changed tremendously, at least mine. I would say in the last five years, environmental issues—the first E and ESG—have just skyrocketed in visibility. So these days, I have an active board practice with other members of our Sidley team. We have a market-leading ESG team led by Heather Palmer and Holly Gregory, and we just have more touches at the board level and the upper management level. Than we have in the past. And there's also much more cross disciplinary focus with our SEC team led by Stephen Cohen than there ever has been in my 25 year career. So that's just been a remarkable change. I think it is driven by ESG and climate change. And then your first question is how do you talk to boards about this? And that's an excellent question because the first rule of communication is know your audience. I think the first thing you have to keep in mind is where does your board sit? Either physically or remotely, because I've done briefings of German boards or South Korean boards, for example, and there's a layer of cultural and legal complexities added on top of ESG and climate change. But the other pieces of it are making sure you're at the right part of the board. So there has been this explosion in ESG and climate change, and different companies have those issues housed in different parts of the board or management. FTI just did a survey this year that said for CFOs, more than 50% are trying to figure out where ESG should sit within an organization and how they put quality control. So who you talk to within the organization is critically important. And then I think finding the right level of detail, given the board's oversight and responsibilities, is critical. One of my favorite quotes is from Herbert Simon, who won a Nobel Prize in economics. And his quote was, a wealth... Of information creates a poverty of attention. So if we have either a compliance issue or a value creating opportunity or life cycle analysis, a complex discipline is involved where you look at actually the carbon or greenhouse gas footprint of a particular product or service. I am not going to spend 10 minutes explaining life cycle analysis. I'm going to try to take it up several levels and be cognizant that this board. Is likely not going to have a degree in life cycle analysis, which is something major colleges and universities are now offering.
0: We often think about environmental and ESG issues as ones that involve managing downside risk for companies. What kinds of value creation opportunities do environmental and climate change issues offer for companies? And how do you help them think through those issues?
1: There are Trillions of dollars of value creating opportunities from climate and ESG, and this again is just a market contrast over the course of my career. You know, starting in the '90s, I think traditionally environmental was seen as a cost center. You're managing risk. You're trying to avoid unwelcome outcomes either at a federal, state, or international level. You know, there are now so many deals out there, so many funds focused on carbon neutrality, net zero, other commitments, whether it's avoiding products that are made through forced labor or other things that just create tremendous opportunity, not only in the deal-making side, but just on companies, social compact with our broader society and our planet. So I think there's a few different buckets. One is physical assets, nor are there physical assets that companies can look at. So in the energy sector, oil and gas There is a huge amount of activity and investment in carbon capture and storage. That's literally capturing greenhouse gas emissions and storing them uh, underground. Another physical asset would be forests. People are buying forests to create carbon credits or offsets. But then you see also sector plays. And what do I mean by that? So, a good example would be in the auto sector. You know, Sidley and other firms have worked on a number of SPACs for electric vehicles. There is Right now, just this rush to get into the sector. And then I think the final play is just training and arbitrage as these markets continue to evolve. So again, something just in the course of my lifetime, it's just been tremendous. And I have a personal connection to this too, with my daughter, Caitlin, who is actually a senior vice president at a utility scale solar development company. So not only do I do this in my day job. I have another family member who's working on deals, part of the broader economic work on addressing carbon. One more question about boards. In your time in private
0: practice, even in, say, the last five years, have you seen a change in board sophistication on environmental and climate change issues? And has that changed how you've communicated with boards and maybe even management teams?
1: Yes, absolutely. There's a recent SEC speech that talks about this very issue. There's also been a number of surveys, but we have seen a few different factors in the markets in terms of boards. First, I've already mentioned governance structure. Management teams and boards are trying to figure out what is the right governance so that we have reporting systems on climate change and ESG, and that there's appropriate follow-up. Obviously, the board is not going to run the company day to day, but how do red flags or yellow flags get spotted? Either on the value creating side or the risk side. And the other issue you've already touched upon, expertise. I think companies are taking a very hard look at the qualifications of directors and trying to get more bandwidth to address some of these incredibly complex issues that are important. And then also knowing your regulator, I think there's a level of depth of understanding that management and boards want. Uh, Whether that's in private equity or the public company. And the big, big change here is climate change. People may think, well, that's an EPA issue. You know, the Biden administration has taken an all of government approach. The SEC is involved in this, the FTC, the OCC, the entire alphabet soup. And one can say, well, that might change with the next election. No, this is not going away because you have not only the federal government, but then you have a number of large states, including California and New York, who have their own regulators. So at a board and management level, it's important that you receive counsel that reflects not just what's written on the page in terms of the law or good best practices for management, but understanding the relationships with those regulators, what they're thinking and where they might go. And you mentioned earlier in
0: the podcast talking to boards of companies that are based overseas. Obviously, you have environmental regulation coming from governments all over the world, which for multinational companies is one more thing that has to be factored in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is, again, something that in the environmental bar, there's always been international environmental law. Either counseling companies on inbound U.S. investment or looking at the cross-border aspects of whether it's a deal, an investigation, or or what have you. What I think has just changed is the volume. You know what we're seeing in the market, and I think it reflects, frankly, some of the movements that are out there from a regulatory and social perspective. I'll give you one example: the EU has a program called Fit for 55, and it sounds like a weight loss program an (laughs) overage man like me might want to take. But instead of helping people lose weight, what this is really talking about is the EU wants to, in its member states, reduce greenhouse gases by 55% by 2033 with 13 different programs. And my EU partner and friend, Nick Lockhart, works on this, and there's so much going on. That it's hard for me to follow, even though I I try to keep abreast of what's Nick's doing. The other thing besides individual sovereigns or groups like the EU pushing that's going on are linkages between countries. So a good example is that California actually has a carbon credit program that's linked to the province of Quebec and Canada. And then how do you manage and counsel those? And then for global companies or people have global footprints, how do you meet the convening demands? of the regulators and societies, if you're in Asia, EU, and the US, and have a harmonized strategy for dealing with all of those, even though climate change is a global issue. So I think it's just fascinating. It's terrible fun to learn about other legal cultures and work with you know brilliant people all over the world.
0: And tell us a little bit about your work with the automotive and mobility group at Civli, which you've alluded to a few times in the podcast.
1: This has been just the best experience over the last two years. I came to Sidley and I had worked a substantial amount of the time in the auto sector, both with incumbent OEMs, startups, parts companies, aftermarket, the whole range. And I knew Sidley had amazing auto lawyers. In fact, I had someone look at our website. We had 200 lawyers globally, Asia, EU here with auto experience, but we didn't have a group where we could cross-pollinate and talk about What are the significant deals you're working on? What are the regulatory litigation? So Martin Wellington, who's a tremendous deal lawyer in our Silicon Valley office, he and I got together, and we've organized an auto and mobility group. And it's a platform. We have not only internal speakers talking about the latest SPAC to bring an autonomous vehicle to market, but we have external speakers and events. And I just think it's a great way to not only learn the latest thinking in the US, but globally and how we can help our clients, and society. And you yourself have a personal interest in cars as well. Absolutely. So as a kid, I loved cars, starting with Hot Wheels. I actually had a great uncle who worked at the Saginaw plant for General Motors, which I got to visit as a little kid. And I I just loved it. And so that's continued throughout my adulthood. And my daughter, Caitlin, and I are actually huge Formula One fans. Now, there's a little bit of a familial split, Uh, My daughter is a rabid Alpine Renault fan, and she loves Esteban Ocon, whereas I'm a diehard Ferrari fan. You know, we've been lucky to get to go to a couple uh, races, and I would highly recommend to your listeners Netflix's Drive to Survive, which is all about the Formula One seasons, I believe, beginning in 2018. And it's just an opportunity to learn more about the sport, and I'm so glad to be able to share my passion for it. Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. For Drinks With The Deal,
0: I'm David Marcus.